You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I want to thank Daniel and everybody else on the worship team. Back-to-back services today, that's not that easy in the practice that goes into it. So thankful for, for the whole team leading us today. This morning, I want us to think for a moment about identity. What is your identity? If I came up to you and asked, who are you, what would your answer be? It's an important question. Your identity determines a lot about you. On one hand, we all have a legal identity of some sort. I have a social security number that no one else has. As far as the government's concerned, that is my identity. That's how they track me. That's how they tell me how much taxes I owe. I have a birth certificate from the state of Tennessee that certifies that I was born in the U.S. I have a driver's license in the state of Alabama that gives me the right to operate a motor vehicle. All those identities are important to how I live my daily life. But if someone were to ask you, who are you, you probably wouldn't use one of those identities. I know I wouldn't. I have other identities that mean a whole lot more to my daily living. I'm a husband. That identity shapes my life in a profound way. I'm also a father. I'm a son. I'm also a pastor. Those identities shape my life in significant ways. Or you could answer in the way that the broader culture promotes today. The culture around us is very concerned with identity right now. We've seen the rise of identity politics over the last few decades. People have divided and rallied together around certain identity markers, such as race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and many others. Theories like intersectionality completely focus on those individual markers as being at the core of who a person is. And in that worldview, I'm not just Josh Vance. I'm a Caucasian, heterosexual, cisgender male. That's a little bit of a mouthful. I could answer that way, but then you can still round out your answer of who you are with any number of personal preferences or interest. Maybe you'd say, I'm a musician, I'm an athlete, I'm an artist, a hunter, a reader, a gardener, or a million other things. All those different forms of identification could be used to answer the question, who are you? Knowing who you are is pretty important. Most people begin wrestling with that question at a pretty early age. Think back to when you were four, five, six, seven. Was there something that you wanted to be when you grew up? If you ask most kids, they say something like firefighter, police officer, zookeeper, astronaut, professional athlete, pastor. Well, none of them actually say pastor. Uh, That's just not something kids want to be. But what the kid is doing, though, at that point is already thinking about who they are and who they want to be. They're thinking about identity. They're trying to answer the question, who am I? It's a pretty important question because who you are should determine what you do. If your identity is a college student, then you should probably study for your classes. Otherwise, you may soon find yourself no longer a student at your college. If you're an athlete, you should probably maintain a healthy enough diet, practice, exercise, or you may find yourself no longer making the team. If you're a husband or a wife, you will interact with your spouse a certain way that you don't act with any other person of that gender, or else you'll find yourself in 
some major trouble. Your identity should shape how you live. And when your actions don't match your identity, then things usually go very wrong. But what if there's one identity marker that transcends and supersedes every other aspect of who you are? Or if there's an identity marker that's more influential and informative and powerful in your life than any other aspect about you? And what if it all centers around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's what brings us to our passage today in Romans 6. If you are a follower of Christ, this is your biography. Romans 6 tells you who you are. And let me tell you, this is some glorious truth. This is who you are. And this morning, I want us to really just revel in the reality of who we are in Jesus. You know, it's interesting that those who follow Jesus, we identify as Christians. It's interesting because the name Christian only appears three times in the Bible. Acts 11.26 tells us that it was first in the city of Antioch that the word Christian was coined. And at that time, it was those who weren't Christians calling those who followed Christ Christians. They were using it in a derogatory term. They were basically making fun of them. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the books of the New Testament, never once uses the word Christian. He describes believers in all sorts of different ways, but never once does he call them Christians. Instead, we see him coming back and back again to describing them as those who are in Christ. He describes believers as being in Christ. To Paul, that is the chief identity. In Ephesians 1.7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood. In Romans 8.1, he says, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1, 4, he says, God chose us in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul uses the phrase in him, in the Lord, or in Jesus 164 times in the New Testament. That should tell us this is a pretty important point. So for me, my identity that transcends all other parts about me is the fact that I am in Christ. Theologically, that's called union with Christ. In God's mind, those who are saved are united with Jesus. And here in Romans 6, Paul unpacks what that means to be in Christ. If we're to look back at chapter 5 of Romans, we see that there Paul is telling about the grace that we now have available through Jesus. And that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more because grace is greater than our sin. But Paul's imagining maybe someone arguing with him saying, Paul, are you saying we can just go on and live however we want? Because we know that the grace is always greater than the sin. And that's why Paul declares here in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He goes on then to give the biography of Christians. This is who you are if you are a follower of Christ, if you're in Christ, and it all centers around the cross and the resurrection. And specifically, I want to point out two things that are true of you if you're in Christ. Two things that are true of you if you're in Christ. The first is that you have died with Christ. You have died with Christ. That may sound like a strange statement, so bear with me for a moment. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you probably understand that baptism is uh, symbolic of this. When we baptize someone, we plunge them beneath the waters, uh, symbolizing how Jesus was dead and buried. And then we bring them back out of the water, symbolizing how Jesus was raised back to life. But Paul takes this language past just symbolism. Look at verse 5. He says, we have been united in a death like his. What kind, of Jesus, what kind of death did Jesus die? He died one of the most excruciating, painful deaths imaginable. Death on a cross. That's what we commemorate on Good Friday. The fact that nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, an innocent, perfect man, was falsely accused and condemned to death by crucifixion by wicked men. First, he was beaten and scourged with a whip. Out of mockery, the Roman soldiers twisted briars into the shape of a crown and, and pressed them down onto his head. He was ridiculed. He was despised. He was forced to carry the cross beam of his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem, lined with people looking to see the, who the poor souls are who are condemned to execution. We know from Scripture that he was too weak already from the prior beatings to even make it to his final destination with his cross. Then once they finally arrive at Golgotha, the place of execution, he's laid on top of the cross, arms outstretched. Spikes are driven through his hands and feet to pin him there. Then the cross is hoisted into place, and Jesus is left hanging there, stripped almost naked, to bake in the Middle Eastern sun, having to pull himself up by the nails through his hands just in order to take a breath. Every breath is excruciating pain. Then all this is carried out in a place visible to the main road into Jerusalem for all the people to see the humiliation of those being crucified. That's the death that Jesus died. And Paul says we've been united with him in a death like his. Then in verse 6 he says that we know that our old self was crucified with him. This is union with Christ. Obviously, it doesn't mean we are physically there in some weird way when Jesus was on the cross, but it does mean that as far as God is concerned, God considers us to have died with Jesus on that cross at Calvary nearly 2,000 years ago because you are in Christ in such a way that what is true about Christ on the cross is true about you even if you believe 2,000 years later. In a way, this isn't just our biography. This is the obituary of your old self. As Paul says, your old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Is there anyone here this morning that's thankful that your old self is dead? Is there anyone who's thankful that you are not who you once were? Just think about the life you lived before Christ. Your BC days, if you will. I'm sure if we surveyed this room, we'd find a wide variety of pasts, of old lives that we are glad we no longer live. Maybe you were an angry, violent person, but now that old self has been crucified. Maybe you were an adulterer. You were addicted to the lusts of your life, but now that old self has been crucified. Maybe you were a gossip, a slanderer. You reveled in tearing people down with your words, but that old person has been crucified. Or maybe you were self-righteous, prideful, thinking you don't need anyone else, especially 
God. But now that old self has been crucified. Praise God that we aren't who we once were. And we aren't because that person doesn't exist anymore. He was crucified with Christ on the cross. Self is dead and gone. That old self was the person who was enslaved to sin. That's strong language that Paul uses there, meant to communicate that without Christ, we are completely at the mercy of our sinful desires and lusts. We're enslaved to it. It's our master, and we do what it wants. The Bible describes sin also as like a yoke around our necks, just like an oxen would be, would have a yoke around its neck so the farmer could make the oxen go wherever he wanted. Sin is like a yoke around our necks, forcing us to do its bidding. But now, after being crucified with Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. As verse 7 says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Those chains of sin have been broken. Sin no longer has the mastery over us. And the amazing thing is that that freedom came at the cost of Jesus Christ's perfect life. It really is the greatest scandal that the world has ever known. Imagine today if there was a high-profile trial of someone who had committed heinous, wicked crimes. That the person was obviously guilty. Everyone knew it. There was no doubt they deserved the harshest penalty and punishment possible. Yet at that moment, someone else comes forward, someone who had done nothing wrong. And that innocent person steps forward and says, I will take his place. I will give up my freedom and give it to him. I will take the punishment he deserves on myself. And then imagine if the judge grants that request, says, yes, we'll let you take this man's punishment and let him go free. Would that not make the headlines in every paper? Would that not go viral on every social media platform? That an innocent man willingly traded his life for a wicked man. Yet that's a scandal of grace. That's exactly what happened when Jesus Christ went to the cross. An innocent man stood in the place of guilty men. But it wasn't just for one person. It was for the sins of every single person who would believe in him. And in that moment on the cross, God poured out his wrath due for our sins upon Jesus as if Jesus himself were a sinner. That's just as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious truth that Christ's death on the cross accomplished our death to sin. Now, does that mean we don't sin anymore? Are we perfect people who never do anything wrong? Does it mean we try to pursue sinless perfectionism? No, that's not what it means. It's obvious that we still struggle with sin and temptation, and we will until we reach heaven. It's obvious we still struggle with it, but I like how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, we may still struggle with sin, but our life is no longer fertile soil for sin. Temptation may come. We may at times even fall back into sins of the past, but there's no longer fertile soil there for sin to take root and to grab a hold of and grow. You're no longer a suitable habitat for it. It may spring up but it cannot long survive until the crushing presence of the Holy Spirit invades and removes. And that's bound up in the second truth of being in Christ. First, you died with Christ, but then secondly, you've been raised with Christ. 
Verse 5 tells us, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Again, as far as God is concerned, when Christ was raised from the dead, he considered us to be raised from the dead as well. On the one hand, this is resurrection that points to the hope of eternal life, a future eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, he was already in his glorified body. He was alive again and would never die again. When Paul says he is the first fruits, it's just the idea of a new tree that yields its very first crop of fruits, knowing that all the fruits that will come later will follow that same pattern as the first fruits. And in the same way, Jesus is the first fruits of those raised from the dead to never die again. And we have the confidence that just as Jesus was raised, we too will one day be raised back to life to never die again. We'll have eternal life with God. But it's not only a future hope. It's resurrection life here and now. The power of the cross is not just a futuristic concept or theory. There is power in the cross and the empty tomb for daily living. We aren't just dead to sin. We're also alive to something else. Verse 10 tells us, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There is no neutral position. You're either dead in your sin or you're alive to God in Christ. There's no one floating around in neutral space. If, if you aren't dead to your sins, then you're still dead in your sins. But for those who have been crucified with Christ, we have also been resurrected with Christ. We have new life here and now. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this new creation has the Spirit of God within them, giving them the desire to pursue the things of God, giving them the desire to live a life that brings glory to God, giving them the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. You see, we aren't just dead to sin. We're also alive to Christ. That's a glorious reality that when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ because we have been united in Christ. We've died with Christ. We've also been raised with Christ. And it was all accomplished on the cross. The empty tomb is the sign of our victory. And now I want to end with an implication and an application. First, the implication is this. There is no going back. There's no going back. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've been united with Christ. As Colossians 3.3 says, your life is now hidden with God in Jesus Christ. We even sang that line in one of the songs this morning. And Jesus has died once and will never die again. What he accomplished cannot be undone. And so it stands that our union with Christ is something that cannot be undone. It is a permanent status change. 
There's no going back. That old self was crucified and put to death. There's not even an old self to go back to. The price tag on your freedom was the blood of the perfect son of God. Your freedom was bought at a price. Your liberty from sin was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and no returns are accepted. Not a drop of Jesus' blood is wasted. You are now one with Christ. And what a glorious truth that is. How incredibly assuring it is to know that our status as a redeemed child of God cannot be changed. We don't have to walk through life in anxiety or fear, wondering that at the end of this short life, will we have measured up? What if we didn't do enough good things to be let into heaven? What if God decides that he doesn't want to let us live with him? But we don't have to worry about that because we are now alive to God in Christ Jesus, and that can never be reversed. So live in that confidence. But then that implication leads to the application, and it's this, to walk in righteousness. Walk in righteousness. Look at the end in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What a beautiful change, beautiful challenge. That it, You know, if you read through Romans, this is the very first command you get to. There's no command given in the first five chapters. So the very first command in the book of Romans is this one, to not let sin reign over you. And the reason is because that's not who you are anymore. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says, this is the Bible actually teaching us, be who you are. Now, it's not in the same way as the Disney movies telling us to be yourself. It's not in the same way the world suggests. The culture around us tells us to be true to yourself, meaning live how you feel or act on all the desires you have inside. But here's what Kevin DeYoung says. When people say relax, you're born that way, or quit trying to be something you're not and just be the real you, they're actually stumbling upon something very biblical. God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself. But the you he's talking about is the you that you are by grace, not by nature. God doesn't say, relax, you were born this way, but he does say, good news, you were reborn another way. That's basically what Paul is saying here in Romans 6. You're dead to sin, alive to Christ. That is who you are, so live like it. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Sin no longer is your king and master. You don't have to submit to it anymore. Instead, you walk in righteousness. You can live in such a way that your life brings glory to God. You can live outwardly a life that reflects the transformation that has occurred within. And that's the power of the cross for daily living. Look to the cross of Christ. Look to the empty tomb for the strength to live for God. That's where our pardon was secured. That's where our freedom was purchased. And that's where our new life began. Now, I want to talk to those in here who have not submitted their life to Christ or trusted in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. None of these things we've looked at are true of you. The Bible makes it clear that if you aren't in Christ, you still remain dead. 
in your sins. And you may feel that too. Maybe you're not that bad compared to other people, but you know that you're still bound by your sinful desires. You keep doing the things you know you shouldn't. You keep going back to the habits that you know will destroy you. Maybe it's like quicksand, where the harder you try to stop, the deeper you get stuck, and the chains of sin are holding you tight. The Bible makes it clear that sin deserves punishment because sin is rebellion against God. And for those that die still in their sins, there awaits only eternal punishment and death. Receiving the just penalty for our rebellion, you only move from death to death, always dying but never dead. But the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to stay that way. Freedom is available. And it requires the simplest act, but oftentimes the hardest act, and that is to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I want to call you this morning to bow the knee to King Jesus. Look at his sacrifice upon the cross. Believe that God raised him from the dead and the tomb is empty. Trust in him as your Lord and Savior. And in so doing, find your old self being crucified with Christ. Step into new life that's now alive to God in Christ Jesus. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And as I do, I, if you feel like you need to give your life to Christ, I'd invite you to pray to God right where you're at. Confess your sins to God. Confess that you know you're a sinner in need of a Savior and ask God to forgive you of your sins. And if you do that and trust in Jesus this morning for the very first time, then I would love to talk with you after. I'd love to be able to celebrate that with you and and pass along one of these little books to you that's, what should I do now that I'm a Christian? And be able to help you begin your faith journey. You don't have to remain in your sins. Trust in Jesus. Find new life. Would you pray with me?